Okay. Let me do all the housekeeping up front. Promote Q to moderator. I always forget. Oh, Q just disappeared. So be it. Um, yeah. Okay, there we go. Q's back in. Um, you should be a moderator. And hey, if you're in the room right now, um, for once I actually remember to say this up front. Uh, if you're listening anonymously on the website, by all means, log into an account. It helps our metrics. It helps us um, get supported by Colin. Colin looks to see how we do. And for whatever reason, um, if you listen on the desktop at a browser and you're not logged in, it does not count toward our metrics. So definitely log in. I think there's about six people who are listening but who are not logged in. I'll remind people periodically. Second thing I'll say is share your social medias that we are up in here. It definitely helps. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell whoever, tell your moms. Just let them know that we are up here. We're going to be talking about the show Atlanta. We talked about the first half of season three. And I think we both agreed that we were a little bit disappointed. And we were kind of struggling with whether it was never as good as we thought. And it was kind of overrated. And we just didn't see it. Or if it's actually missing something. But we decided to give it a second chance after all the episodes were wrapped. And by the way, you don't need to listen to us finish our whole spiel. If you want to jump in at any time, if you just want to start talking now, if someone's got a strong opinion about this season of Atlanta, you don't even want to hear what the fuck rest I gotta I gotta say. You're welcome to just come in here and cut me off and get to it. So I'm just throwing it out there. You're welcome to jump in at any time. But yeah, um, I'll say for myself, I did not like the second half any better than the first. I think I might have actually liked it a little less, I think. Um, I think there was one episode I might have actually liked that showed potential. Uh, the general trend I would say is the standalone episodes about white people I thought were definitely worse than the regular storyline episodes. The regular storyline episodes I thought were by and far much better but the finale with Van in Paris dressed as Amelie, I, it's like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of um, these these new blacks uh, creating, you know, this black excellence crowd, they kind of want to lean too hard on that we were always weirdos. And now we've made the, weird, the weirdness into something cool. Like, it's too... It's just trying too hard to be weird. Like, you know that goth kid in your class who just tried a little too hard to be weird and it was kind of uh, inorganic after a while? It was almost kind of normie-ish the way they, how badly they wanted to be weird. I feel like Glover's leaning into that. But um, Q, I want, I want to make sure that you're not just being quiet, that there's actually, it has, oh, no, there's I'm not here. a problem. Is everything okay? No, no. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm here. Okay. You sound like far away, though. Um, oh, can weird. people in the audience tell me if our audio sounds very different. I want to I want to know if it's my volume is too low or if we actually have a difference in volume. Yeah, let me know in chat. Sometimes there's uh issues with the mic that just spring up out of nowhere. I never ha- okay. I never really know how to fix them because they just like there's there's no indication as to why it, it's happening. I think it might have been my volume levels. I checked my volume levels and I'm using my iPad instead of my iPhone. Okay. So, I don't know if um that's the difference, but yeah, please, people, let us know if our audio levels are very are very different. But um, yeah, I suspect it's not you. I suspect it's me. 
Bernie in Bernie, Georgia said in the chat, the last episode was only entertaining because it didn't make sense, but that didn't make me like it. Yeah, I can say that. I mean, it wasn't boring. I mean, the most boring one to me was training to the bone. And uh, I'm somebody who's, uh, you know, family. I'm of Caribbean descent, you know, but um, I'm my family's Haitian. So I've I've not ever been good at telling the English speaking Caribbean accents apart. I've never been great at it. But when I can tell that uh, Chet Hanks accent is clearly like to me Jamaican and not <laughs> Trini. Like, I mean, he wasn't even. I mean, am, am I wrong? Uh, you're of Jamaican descent. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But to me, that that didn't sound like the same accent he's, as everybody. He's, else. he's attempting a Jamaican accent. He's not attempting a Trini accent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's fairly the Jamaican one too. Um, yeah. But it's no, the, clearly the more Jamaican, Jamaican the, accent. No, the Jamaican accent is uh, is more gruff and stern, and the Trini accent has got a mellifluous flow to it, so it kind of goes up and down. So, so it's like I'm not gonna actually try to do the Trini and Jamaican accent like right off the cuff right now. You didn't tell yeah. me that we're, we didn't tell me that we're doing improv today, but uh, <laughs> no, it, it it is most definitely a Jamaican accent. Yeah, as an outsider, I would say to me, the Trinidadian accent sounds way more musical to me, like like they're kind of a little more sing songy to me to to yeah. me and. And like you said, the Jamaican one is a little more gruff and has a, a different type of inflection. And then, yeah, it was like, why did you do that? Why did you even put him? And, and, and I'm so kind of sick of, after that big interview, talking in the beginning of the season, the one where he interviewed himself, and he was bashing the internet and people who use social media to, uh, it's not real life, and use social media to create, couldn't be me. This was the most social media season I've ever seen. I mean, once you have Kevin Samuels on, like, just shut up. You, He was so into social media and so referencing memes, which we discussed the first half, but it got even worse the second half, culminating with the Kevin Samuels uh, RIP, um, you know, appearance. And a quick aside I want to say, I don't even understand what fame is anymore because when you have George Wallace who's been in the business for God knows how many years, playing support <laughs> to Kevin Samuels. <laughs> you know, he's playing Kevin Samuels, like, sidekick. I'm like, wow. The internet has so, like, warped what the idea of a celebrity or fame is. Like, I really underestimated how famous that Kevin Samuels guy was, I guess. I I, uh, I had a... I had a hard time, actually, with the last episode. Um, some people liked uh, Van's like tailing off into living her uh best life in paris like i don't know like turning into audrey tattoo and uh like living as uh, what was it she she saw the movie amelie and then decided she, she wanted to she wanted to go to paris and then be like her or something like that and ended up getting into a bunch of really weird shit with alexander skarsgård and some high society snobs uh i don't know man i think the show lost its heart when they left Atlanta because I think what they're trying to do is, is racial horror on par with get out or some sort of Jordan yes. production. And I really yes, don't, I, I really don't like that because it, it makes it seem as if like, like black people in these European countries simply don't exist and that they're a, some sort of strange phenomenon. So the encounter of black people with European people, especially like black people from America with European people is, 
itself lends itself to some sort of like gothic or surreal horror. Meanwhile, like there are all kinds of black people, especially in France. Like there's no, there's nothing new about black people in France. There's nothing new about black American in France. Like France is a, a fairly, or Paris at least has a significant um, population. Many of them from uh, West Central and North Africa. They so, had a huge, they had a huge amount of uh, U.S. expats since like the the twenties yeah. and thirties. You know, Josephine Baker, all this stuff. I mean. Yeah, like there's not, not as many as the Africans that people straight from Africa they have, but I mean, yeah, you're right. It's not like brand new to them. Yeah, so it kind of it kind of felt to me like they were doing the same uh, sort of like um, uh, we are not an, we're not our ancestors bullshit, where they act as if they're the first people ever to do something. Like when they were talking about uh, um, insecure and how Easter Ray is a trailblazer, it felt a, a lot of the same. Where it's like, okay, maybe it's the first time that you all have spent significant time in Europe, but it, it, like this, this is not new by any stretch. And uh, it, black, black people in uh, encounters with high society whites doesn't lead to an Alexander Skarsgård sort of like, uh, you know, um, pulling together blackmail material situation. It's more like a, um, uh, what was that dude's name uh, that was uh, president of the World Bank and ended up... Um, Sexually assaulting a black hotel maid in New York. You know what I'm talking about? I know exactly who you're talking about, but I'm drawing a blank. I'm sure someone Dominic Dominic Strauss Kahn. Dominic Strauss Kahn. Yeah. yeah. Like that that's what the, the dynamic is like where you have these like uh you know, these 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 rich French people that think that everybody else is the help. Um or you just have like straight up like you know, like uh lower, lower class criminals. But the the racial dynamics and tension in France are way different than they are in the U.S. So this transplanting of American horror, gothic, and surrealism into a city like Paris, it just it rang really false for me. Another problem I have too is that um, I mean, all white countries have anti-blackness to different degrees, but I think for the most part they flatten all of Europe into just one type of giant European. And like there was little idiosyncratic things. They like, talk about uh, Schwarzer Pete, like like Black Pete, you know, in Amsterdam, yeah. and you know they talked about like and they showed like the projects in Paris and what their hood is like, and how even like American people get scared. I, I remember um, my mom went to uh, Paris and she said like the the hood there scared the hell out of her. Like she's like it's not like any hood she's ever seen in America and stuff. And you know she's. She's like been in the third world from Haiti, and, and she was like, "This thing scared the hell out of me." So like little idiosyncrasies like that, but I didn't feel like there was enough actual, real difference in the cultural. Like for all the talk about white people flattening black people, I feel like this thing really flattened Europe in a way that it was a, It was a bunch of Europeans. It was a bunch of Europeans either um, confounded or like fanboying out at this group. <laughs> And it was yeah. being it was them being wildly confused about European cultural norms, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't I should even I shouldn't even say that it wasn't even cultural norms it was just weird European people it was just weird white people speaking in European accents. You know, reminds me of like, and I feel like to a degree, Get Out owes a, a debt to this. Like people don't really name this as an influence in uh, black horror, and then we're gonna get we're gonna get to rich. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Rich. Be patient. I'll wrap. The, I'll wrap this up fast. Uh, Boondocks. 
Uh, I recently like um, rewatched Boondocks during the um, pandemic, and one thing that kind of struck me is like this weird, uncanny valley between the white people and the black people, where the white people have this weird kind of placid Stepford Wives type of smile, and they're very caricatured weird. Like, um, they're almost rendered like comical and strange. And I noticed that in general, that's kind of how a lot of um, black bougie types, new blacks, depict white people. There's this weird Stepford quality to to white people that, that makes it kind of... You know yeah. what it kind of feels like is like it's it's not even that uh it, is that to me it comes across as more a reflection of the creators who portray them that way, which because like mm-hmm. I, you know I I've been to Europe I I and I know a lot of people uh you know first and second generation Canadians that are are from countries like uh you know like France Holland Germany etc. And they don't act like that. I think what it is for these uh for these entertainment types is that they. American white people are already difficult enough as it is for them to fit in with, but Europeans to them are a bit of a conundrum. So rather than understand them and how uh, their racial dynamics play out, what they do instead is just portray them all as a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, yeah, but but even the American ones are portrayed as a bunch of weirdos. So so the European ones just become weirdo squared, and it's um, yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, Rich, feel free to unmute and thank thank you for being patient. Okay, can y'all can y'all hear me? Okay. Yeah, you sound great. You're good. Okay. Yeah, I was just gonna just say, um, this season of Atlanta, I only made it to the first six episodes because I wasn't feeling it by like episode two, and I'm not one of those people that feel like once you start something, you have to finish it. That's one thing I'm. I'd say I'm blessed to have been gifted with is i can cut things off pretty easily but um the big thing i noticed from this season of atlanta compared to season one especially in season two is the reliance on bottle episodes but not making any of the characters in the bottle episodes interesting and really just trying to rely on like donald or his uh brother what's his brother's name steven like they're analysis of race and only viewing race really from a black white dislike comparison as whereas like the first season of atlanta where the city of atlanta is so much of a character and where i enjoyed it so much personally was because i was going to school in atlanta for the for my freshman year so i'm in a new city and i'm seeing how other people experience it i'm seeing how donald might have experienced it or whatever and if you're gonna if you're gonna take an analysis of the city of atlanta you're going to do an analysis of race because Atlanta is a city that's been shaped by race. And, but when you try to take this abroad towards Europe and kind of the, it's, I don't know if they changed this in the last four episodes, but it seems like Paperboy was kind of a lot of his role was kind of cut through the season aside from this episode with the tree and the, uh, what's the name of the, the weird guy, the Paperboy's friend, um, um, I'm blanking on his name, but everyone knows. Uh, so. Dar- Darius. Darius. Yeah, Darius. What's I was going to say that real quick. I felt like he was not even human anymore. He became too stupid to live. As in, like, this this guy is so dumb, he should forget to breathe at, at this at, point. It, 
But the thing the thing I noticed with Darius, and I forget, the, what's the name of the actor who plays Darius? Because uh, like a thing that's happened with him in this show that's also kind of seemed to have bled into his other acting roles in movies is he's not really playing the character of Darius. Now Darius is really just kind of just become the actor. The Keith San- Stanfield. The sh- uh, uh, Stanfield, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Atlanta season three didn't have Darius. It had Lakeith Stanfield, where at least in the first season it felt like like uh, Darius was just a normal, just nigga you see around Atlanta, just weird and everything like that. But he still he still feels authentic. Whereas in the third season, he feels like a Juilliard kid. He feels like some weird art, like kid who grew up around white people all the time and was doing all these weird, just hanging around art schools and things like that. And it feels like some of these changes just didn't hold up when so much of the season relied upon uh, Donald Glover's intellect so to say and it's not that interesting in the first place that's all uh something i want to say too is like i don't really like where a lot of the young black race discourse has gone with intersectionality and the constant talking about spaces and bodies and somehow trying to turn every conversation to um you know Black women and queers will save everybody. Black men, the weakest link. Um, allies, allies, allies. Like, I, I don't really like that stuff, but Donald Glover and Stephen Glover remind me of all the ways the Black discourse was bad 10 years before the new intersectional Black discourse. And I'm starting to remember, like, well, like, what was preceding it was pretty bad, too. Like, it just feels like that adult swim-watching Black guy who liked Chappelle, liked Boondocks, let his uh, white homeboys who skated and he smoked weed with uh, drop N-bombs around them, um, had some kind of chip on the shoulder about being a blurred and and black women. And like, there's something about, I mean, I think that era was still better than the current era and that at least you occasionally got something talented even if the commentary was a little too post-racial and uh, a little a little too comfortable with letting um, white people in the spaces, you know, but it was bad in its own way. And in a, in a way that I think the new black badness is an overcorrection to, you know, and they just feel like they haven't moved on. They're kind of patting themselves on the back for being stuck in the 2010s, but with modern internet language. Yeah. Something a bit like more I, advanced in the Europe, that makes sense. No, I get what you're saying. And like, this is the last thing I would say, because I'm not trying to hog the space or nothing, but it's just like, it feels like Donald I mean, I mean for the record, there's nobody, there's nobody behind you. So take as much time as you want. Nobody's pushing you off, so take your time. Oh, yeah, no, nah, yeah, I appreciate it. I'm just watching the game, too, and I don't want, like, my sound to get messed up or anything. No problem. But, like, I'm, uh, but, like when you mentioned the interview Donald Glover had with himself and just kind of how weird that was and then, like, the part where he brings up to himself why don't you like black women? But he doesn't actually answer that question. He just kind of goes, why? That's so ridiculous. Why would we bring this up? It, this whole season, the whole lead up to this season kind of feels like Donald Glover, who's kind of gone from the one spectrum of the black guy who loves to tell you how much he's different from black people and yada, 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 and how much he likes Asian women and white women or whatever, whatever, whatever. And then he kind of, he 
seems like he matured a little bit when he made like the because the internet album and it seemed like he was giving something that was at least like artistically like interesting to something he himself would have done and then it's kind of gone through atlanta and then to this last space where after all these critics these predominantly white critics that and i'm always skeptical of, of projects i don't know if there's anyone else who's like this but whenever i hear a movie or a show and people laud it for the way it depicts race or the conversations that are going to be had because of this show white folks love talking about conversations uh it's just i always kind of raise my eyebrows about it and it feels like donald's because falling in love with the idea of the conversation heard, you can create I, yeah yeah i heard someone uh call call modern discourse um uh, the conversation industrial complex the, the the have a conversation industrial complex i thought that was the best the best uh description i've heard like we have to have a conversation about it's like okay i'm, I'm so sick of it uh, by the way i'm putting links into the chat about articles that and interviews that you know people related to the show have had about the show and a lot of the writers and makers of the show are really smelling their own farts and enjoying them when it comes to what they think the show is doing and it's, and uh like donald glover's one got the most um attention but a lot of the things the other writers have been doing uh including the training to the bone writer uh if you want an example of someone who is trying too hard to be weird um he posted a tweet i should put it up there it was a bit too okay but um one thing stephen glover had an interview and he said that they're trying to show and i think this goes back to what q was saying about uh the black horror thing they're trying to show that whiteness is a curse and that's something that I notice happens a lot with new blacks where they try to, uh, even Kennedy does this, for example, this kind of idea that um, white supremacy is a curse that hurts everybody and it uh, ultimately hurts white people as much as it hurts black people. And you know, I can I can agree to a point that uh, a lot of times being racist leads white people to kind of cut off the nose despite their face and a lot of times white people actually do something counterproductive to themselves just to make sure that blacks don't benefit but i think it goes too far when you try to act like they're equally as cursed by black people by their racism or and when i saw the interview where he said that it took me back to the first scene in the first episode where the white guy and the black guy are sitting in the boat and the white guy is telling the black guy about how you know white people uh, being racist made them unable to see the humanity in others and under, un, ultimately not see the humanity in themselves. And it seemed like, okay, somebody got high in a college dorm. This is like, I'm high in a college dorm and I'm just saying whatever comes to mind. And I think it sounds deep. And I think they should have left that one in the drafts. I don't know. But uh, the other interview, and, that, and then that stop talking, is one an okay player with the uh, interview, I think, with the. Or it's a recap of the Training to the Bone episode, and it has a tweet from the writer. And I think the tweet from the writer is trying way hard to be weird. But they're both in the chat if you want to see them. And I'm done. No, yeah. And I'm, it's, I'm glad you brought that first episode, because that first episode might have been one of the worst ways to start off the season for me. Because it felt so lazy. Like, on, on top, beyond it, even, like, the analysis and kind of what he was trying to do with that episode it's just Twitter conversations. Like niggas have been joking, especially if you've been, if you've been on Twitter and you follow a lot of folks from Atlanta, 
like Lake Lanier has been talked about so many times over like from like 2014 onwards that like the moment I saw the black guy and the white guy in the boat and they start talking about how this lake's cursed and everything, I was like, oh, they're not about to just like copy some Lake Lanier tweets, are they? And then they just go from that to just copying and really using this, the tragic story of those of those kids who were put into group homes and the like real damage that like the group home industry in Atlanta does to like black kids predominantly. And I'm just like, oh, this this should, it feels nasty. Like a, it felt like a nasty way to start the season, and then it never got interesting. Like at least when Tony Soprano was being racist, like I could laugh at him looking at Uncle Ben and having a faint because he's so racist. Like uh, that that was really just it for me, and I was just and from there it's kind of like a steady decline because it never felt more. It I didn't feel attached to the characters at all. No, I totally, I totally agree with you, a hundred, a hundred percent. Um, the link didn't work. I'm putting another. I'm trying to link again. Let's see if this one works. Uh, to the guy's tweet, but if, hmm, well, if you cut, if you copy and paste it, it should work. It's also in the, um, OK Player link. But I'll just read out loud. Um, but actually, let me send it. Let me send it to Q as Q as well. Um. To see it, so 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 that you you can see it, but I mean this thing, this link I think was the perfect example of um, the kind of writer. Stephen Glover said I was the weirdest writer in the room. Honored. So, is this a baby? Is this a doll? Of, okay, he's got a barbecue yeah. on with a what looks like a a doll, and is that like artichokes and what the fuck is what is this shit man so 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 he so he's he's has uh this is how white this is how white people will feel watching it if you talk shit on it please at me and cc donald lover all right there buddy yeah yeah there's a couple things going on in this picture right first off he's wearing the atlanta sweatshirt he's got a barbecue bib on the bib has a picture of that scammer who pretended to be a doctor you know that black kid that um, pretended to be a doctor? Yeah, and yeah. Was, yeah, so it has him on it. Um, he, has, he has Jay's on. He has a white baby on the grill that's not on, but it's a plastic baby. Like, nothing about this feels organic. It's just a stage, look how weird I am. Look at me, look at me, uh, picture. And then uh, the tweet, like he said, uh, says, the first episode of TV I've ever written is... The new episode of Atlanta FX, um, pr- and it said, proud Stephen Glover said I was the weirdest writer in the room. Honored, like he said. So y'all in trouble. This is how white people will feel watching it. I guess he's saying that the kids, the kid on the grill, is how white people will feel watching it. But this is the part that I thought was a cynical. If you talk shit on it, please at me and CC Donald Glover. And I'm like, okay, so you just want a reaction really bad, which I don't think you're going to get because it's not really making white people uncomfortable. It's very lame. That Trinity, Except for the Trinity to the Bourne episode. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this episode is not making First white of all, people... why, why are you trying to make any kind of art that is directed at making white people feel uncomfortable? Which, which white people exactly? First of all, how many white people, like broadly, are watching Atlanta? Uh, aside from like TV reviewers, 
And second of all, I think, why, why, I, I think probably why, 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 I think I wouldn't be surprised if a decent amount of watching, but personally, I don't it's know. probably like Tyler Perry movies where a lot, of, like a big thing of it is it's appeal to white people looking for black art. I guess I just okay. So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't any white people that watch it. I, I guess my question is like, why why are you making it for why are you making them your your uh, your target audience for this episode, and why is your goal to make them uncomfortable? Because if there's Anything that I, I mean, listen, I, I have like a, a whole taxonomy of white people, all right? And I will tell you right now that none of them actually feel uncomfortable with anything black. Now, they may express discomfort to black people. They may perform discomfort. Are they actually uncomfortable and shit? Were, were they made uncomfortable by that episode? I doubt it. Mm. It might be uncomfortable if you move into the neighborhood and lower their property values. If you're a certain kind of black, <laughs> if you're a certain kind of black person. Yeah, but but these thought experiments right. that they're doing, you know, I don't think are, are doing anything. If if their if their daughter, uh, if their daughter um, facetimes you from the family table during Thanksgiving, and you're a Division One football player, the family might be a bit uncomfortable. Uh, if you if you uh, receive a promotion at work that a white person felt that they were entitled to, you might make them uncomfortable. Uh, but if you make a TV show that millions of people watch and your shit is weird and plays on racial horror, I, I, have you met these people? Do you know how their, their parents and grandparents and great grandparents were? But, but also like, the episode is treating to the bone. It's not even the weirdest episode of the season. It was just a boring one. Like it was like, like what was yeah. so weird about it? It was just about, I mean, Maybe the Chet Hanks thing was weird, but that was weird in like a lame way. You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm-hmm. I would say R. Kelly trapped in the closet is more genuinely weird. Yeah. Than <laughs> anything these people do. Like, like yeah. that's the thing where I'm like, okay, this guy is being earnest here. Like, like he is just a really weird guy. Like, like this, like this just seems like people trying to affect quirk. This is like black Wes Anderson. This is twee in a way, you know, it's, it's and, I'm like, even if I agree with what you said about why is your main concern making white people uncomfortable instead of trying to, like, you know, speak to white people, like, you know, but also, or just you know, how do you succeed? How do you succeed in making white people uncomfortable? You just said, hey, white people are uptight, NPR listening, uh, dweebs. Like, they see that all the time from the first uh, black people talk like this, but white people talk like this jokes that, you know, Richard Pryor said. Like, it's, there's yeah. nothing new in there that was not said in the Richard Pryor joke. You know, the the Richard Pryor white white voice. I'm sorry, you were saying something. No, that's the exact I thing heard. I was about to say. Was that's the exact thing I was about to say? Is that uh, this is not this isn't something that uh, this isn't something that white people are unused to hearing. This is this is stuff that they've been hearing since the late 1970s. From, from yeah, Richard very Ryan. lightweight. It, yeah, this is very, very uh, lightweight. But the last line of the tweet, if you talk shit on it, please at me and see Donald Glover. He's basically saying, and this is the most non-weird, the most corporate, anybody who's worked in a corporate job knows what he's doing here. He wants the his manager to see that, you know, he did something good at work. So he's like, hey, can you uh, write my boss and let me know, <laughs> let him know that, you know, I'm doing this discourse thing? You know what I mean? Like, like that is the most non-weird guy thing to do. You've just shown that you are just 
uh, very typical working climate, which is fine, you know. But just yeah, like the whole thing. Please tag me to show me how how um, uh, triggering I am, and and please CC my boss so he can you know I can get more work next year. And I guess it's a very banal type of um, self promoting maneuver that to me shows like you're way more normal and sane and pragmatic than your um, contrived weirdo image in the tweet you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I just, I, I'm, I would, I would really like to return to a time when black writers and creatives generally just made good shit and didn't, they didn't, they didn't try to focus the uh, the appeal on how it might make white people feel. I I really would like to return to a time when no black creative ever felt that their work had to be described using the word unpacking. Yeah. And also, right. if you're going to make white people feel uncomfortable, then really make them uncomfortable. Like, for example, like Spook, who sat by the door uncomfortable. Like, you know, where yeah. where the movie ended up getting banned. <laughs> that's that's what the one who made something uh, uncomfortable. Like, like, they didn't even air right. shit. Right. If 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 your if your uh, writing um, is going to be banned from like libraries and prisons, like blood in my eye, hey, I'm all for it. But uh, that that's not what the intention is. The intention is just to tell the truth. It's not to make people feel a certain way. It's simply to to, to speak the truth, or talk about uh, conditions as they are. So I, I think some of this, um, I don't know, like uh, it feels like Atlanta tailed off into the worst excesses of like dadaism and uh like hippie hippie culture where it's just like eh, nothing matters may as well make fun of everything nothing makes sense and it's i i just i find that i find that absurdist movement to be probably one of the most destructive forces that that ever existed in art culture because what you did was take all of the the energy that would have been put towards uh, speaking truth to power, and what it goes towards, as it said, is just saying, "Ha ha, nothing makes sense." You, you know what I mean? Maybe yeah, I, told, I, 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 I explained myself I well you. enough here, but oh, I, I just, oh no, yeah. no, oh, oh no, you explained yourself. I just couldn't find the unmute button, so, so that was what it was. It was just me fumbling oh, with no the worries. unmute button. No, no, no. I totally, I totally agree with you, and I wanted to uh, also welcome uh, Bernard to um, speak up. But uh, before you do speak up, Bernard, I want just say real quick, I posted a YouTube in the um, chat, and because I was looking up takes on Atlantic, I was curious to find what other people were saying about it. It changed my algorithm so that the algorithm started recommending me um, YouTubes about Atlanta, and one of them recommended me was one of the first trailers slash commercials for Atlanta, and when I watched it, I had seen the trailer before five years ago, but watching it now when like the kind of uh, scales have kind of fallen from my eyes as far as, you know, being as impressed with Donald Glover, I realized like, oh, wait a minute, this video is just far side drop. Uh, I'm sorry, this, this commercial, they just took far side drop and walking backwards and they played it uh, going for going forwards. And um, yeah, I, w- I was like, oh, so this is this is just. And that's what I realized. Okay, so he's always just been um, sampling and and pastiche. He's always been kind of this. Uh, I realize he's more a black Tarantino than anything. He's someone that's more a pastiche artist than I think anybody with anything 
unique to say, and um, that maybe the roots of this kind of derivativeness has always been there in plain sight, and we missed it. So yeah, th that's in the chat if anybody wants to see it. And Bernard, feel free to unmute and say what's up. They should have stayed their ass in Atlanta, <laughs> like for the whole season, because I'm I'm so confused. In fact, I would actually like for y'all to explain to me the last episode. Like I said, I was entertained because I liked some of the allusions to like the Atlanta hustle culture, which can get weird. Like there's a lot of scamming and, and hustle culture down there to, to uphold this black mecca image that that can get very strange. Let, let's say that a lot of people down there are not working like normal jobs that yield high incomes. But I just didn't understand where that episode even came from. And like, I, I tried uh, to watch uh, the season. I can't, I can't explain it well, but I can tell you what Stephanie Robinson, the writer of it said. And, and it didn't make make much sense to me either. In fact, I think I might read parts of her interview about the episode later. I think it's the only one she wrote. And I was disappointed because she was one of my favorite writers on the show, beautiful sister. Uh, but she wrote the barbershop episode where that scammy guy is running from barbershop. And this seems to be... That was classical Atlanta right there. That episode, that that's what you need to know about Atlanta right there. <laughs> you know, it's funny. She's kind of ripping like... off herself because... This is kind of the same thing. The same way that scammy guy was uh, dragging, was it Darius or Paperboy? Who was being dragged dragged behind? It was Paperboy. But the thing about that episode is it was actually realistic from what I see in Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, but, but but this this was a surreal Amelie uh, yeah. free version of that same episode. Except instead of a scammy barber dragging Paperboy around, there's a scammy uh, black Amelie dragging these black girls around to surreal around things. Like, okay, you're kind, of, you're kind of ripping off yourself, but to diminishing returns. And, and the writer. sequel things just don't make sense. Like, I, I don't, like, I just didn't know what episode came at all, because I was like, is it somehow linked to the earlier or, like, middle well, season well, episodes? Well, one like, thing that was interesting... I don't even know how she got left there. Well, one of the things that's interesting uh, is that in the interview, she said that it was not aired in the order it filmed. And this oh. wasn't originally this this wasn't originally supposed to be the finale, but at some point when they were putting the season together for whatever reason, they decided to make this the finale. But then that that makes me think, okay, so what does anything mean if you can just resequence things like that? Uh, okay, why, so, so I'm not crazy. That's what you tell no. me. I thought it was out of place, and I was like, I, I don't know where this came from. Like I was so lost. Like, but, but the other thing is, if that wasn't meant to be the final episode what was meant to be the final episode because i can't think of any other episode that would have particularly been better they all would seem kind of lacking as a final episode so like there was no episode i thought of where i thought oh i bet this was probably the real final episode they all kind of maybe the one with the trans person in amsterdam where you know he finds out that Ern actually does have him owning his masters like like maybe that would have been a better final episode but yeah even that one seemed everything seemed kind of half-baked like it had five or ten minutes left to unpack something and it didn't to me yeah is it me or did, like a lot of the episodes in this season just seem like um completely independent of one another whereas i think in the previous two seasons i felt like there was some sort of progression that i could actually follow between the episodes or am i just misremembering that because I just, I don't understand the progression of this season. It just seems like each episode just exists independently and you're supposed to interpret it on its own. I, I, 
I don't know. I feel I feel there was always some level of connection and disconnect in every episode, you know, but it had a good balance. Whereas this one, I feel like it didn't strike that same balance. Like it was, it leaned way more in the disconnect direction than the connect direction. But that's my personal take. I'm curious what other people think. And also, if anyone else has thoughts, by all means, feel free yeah, to come up and share good. them. Also, a periodic reminder, if you're listening online on the desktop on a browser, feel free to sign in. Feel free to sign in and uh, l- listen signed in. You know, stay on the browser. But Additionally, if, you're, if you are signed in while uh, on the browser, you can actually join. You can you can uh, join the caller queue. That too. Yeah, you can actually uh, talk to us if you join on the browser. Yeah, but yeah, it helps, it helps our metrics with the call-in people. For whatever reason, it doesn't uh, count to our metrics if you listen on the browser, but you don't actually sign into an account. So yeah, it's free to sign up for an account. So yeah, take 10 seconds and do that. It would be greatly appreciated. And well, some people are into the queue, but I want to make yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm going to let them come up because I, I'm honestly, I'm kind of curious to see what you're going to read about that last episode because that's the one that just really threw, well, a lot of them threw me for a loop, but I was like, where the hell did this come from? Yeah, and I'm going to look for the I'm going to look for the interview with Stephanie Robinson while these people talk as well. So let yeah, me just, let me uh, let Doc move. come up there. All right. Okay. Cool. Talk Thank to you. you soon. Oh, and as you, you just muted yourself, uh, T. Uh, yeah, as usual, anybody who um, comes down from the queue is always welcome to come back up and uh, speak again. You're always welcome to come back. And yeah, uh, by all means, Doctor, please unmute. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, you guys are, I'm really liking the discussion. Um, I watched all of the new season of Atlanta, except for the, I haven't caught the, the very last episode yet. But from, I think you guys are hitting on the, hitting the nail on the head with a lot of points. Um, I just had a couple of things, though. So I think T brought, um, brought this up. On all, I think it's, it's come up multiple times. But just the the amount that these writers and 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 black people in media that are playing to the white gaze is just really it just bothers me to like deeply and and i can sense some of that in the new season of atlanta and when and especially i i hadn't seen the the guy who had written the trini the trini to bad uh, trini to the bone episode i thought i mean i thought some of that i mean it was sort of a cute idea but i never would have thought like oh this is this strange weird you know artistic idea and like that that corny tweet you put like i don't know i don't know what we do about that and, and just in general that sort of thing i'm playing to the white gaze but um, I, I, would actually, I would actually say yeah, it's probably sure. less playing to the white gaze than it is um all these new hack comedians do when they it's like uh t and i were talking about last week when we were talking about like ricky, ricky gervais and some of these other comedians where they'll uh deliberately say something in and they and be like are you triggered are you triggered sjw's are you triggered snowflakes and it's just like you're, yeah you're from low hanging fruit yeah yeah i think that's like that's like an internet thing too like a corny internet thing like when they say oh drinking liberal tears mug that that sort of shit and so, and like every side does it at every other to whatever they just, they decree as their like their enemies, right? So it's just like everyone doing like the same dumb corny ass joke, and it's not even a joke. Yeah, the the, the whole idea of like uh, trying to um, provoke somebody into a reaction through your art 
is I don't know, man. It's like uh, it's like it's like the kid in school pulling the pigtails of the girl that sits in front of him in class because he likes them. So it's like on the one hand, yeah. I, when these people say stuff like that, it's like they're they're uh, posturing as if they want to piss off white people. But what it really is is that they're trying to get white people intrigued enough to hire them to write for their show. Oh yeah, I totally agree. And something I want to add too. Um, and actually, I'm going to invite someone up to uh, speak because I was I was hoping not to put you on the spot, Kamaria, but I was hoping you would you would show up because I like her thoughts on the show. Uh, and I was actually going to rip off one of her thoughts because uh, she wasn't she wasn't coming up. But I'll start it anyway. This idea, and uh, Kamaria pointed this out to me, and I agreed with it. This idea that. Um, this season, I think, really kind of betrays that Donald Glover kind of sees the black people in a more otherized, otherized way than I first realized. Like, I kind of gave the first season credit for feeling for, for the black gays, but this episode, and, and Kamari said this, and I agree, I feel like black people are weirder to him than white people are. And I feel like he almost tries to overcompensate for that by trying to make the white people extra weird in the fiction. But I think he really kind of gets them more because the white people are kind of caricatures that are eating hands and doing just really crazy stuff that normal white people really, I don't think really do. They're just so over the top. But the black people are bad in a way that I just think is regular run-of-the-mill racist, like, you know, loud, uh, rude, you know, in, in the Train to the Bone episode, fighting in the funeral. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that black people do where I'm like, okay, like, even though you're trying to make the white people more conspicuously weirder, I feel like you actually get them more. And you're looking at the black people with white eyes. And they're more tacky and bad in the more banal, almost unintentional way. Like, like a lot of stuff. Like, for example, the whole Trini thing where the, the guy was asking to be the new male nanny at the woman's funeral. Like, I just don't feel like that's something the Korean people would do at a funeral. Like, I don't buy it. I don't believe that a Caribbean American kid is going to badmouth her mother at the funeral. I just didn't feel... Absolutely not. No way. Trinidadian? Like, like no. No. Yeah. Oh, and you didn't hug me enough? Like, she was making money for you to have whatever job allows you to have that nice fiction and nice clothes. And people grow up knowing that. You don't grow hey, up T, T, about... uh, real, real quick, it sounds like you're, you're peeking a little bit on your microphone. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm on some earbuds. Is it any better now or is it the same? Much better. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, that's not the kind of, I mean, like, um, Caribbean, people who grew up with Caribbean families know, like, you know, y- your parent might be in a whole different country sending money back. That's just the game. You just, you know, you, yeah. you, you appreciate it. Like, uh, yeah, the whole thing, you didn't hug me. You were taking care of these white people's kids, and I'm going to air it out at the funeral. Like, no way. You would not do that. I, that this, yeah, I just don't think he understands black people to me i don't know yeah yeah and um i i have um a family member that released a uh, a well-known book actually in uh in the uk and 
um, it talked about um, talked about like uh, all of the abuse that she went through as a child um, that she was was called names uh, that her um, her color was used as a, as a point of as a her color was used as a point of abuse uh, and it, it sold really well and she actually went on like a, a fairly large press tour now um, UK media really lapped it up but family back home did not enjoy that shit they were actually very upset by it and mm. um, much of the family didn't uh, like it either as a matter of fact I don't even know that she was uh, at her mother's funeral I don't know I don't know whether she was or not so uh, this idea that like somebody would go to a family funeral and start bad mouthing you, you just don't you don't do that I, it's it seems like it, the way that you, you said that uh, Donald Glover has a um, an eye for black people that is actually kind of racist towards black people. I do see this a lot in, I don't so much see it from like people who come from continental Africa. So like people who come from Nigeria or Ghana, et cetera, you, you don't see it with Issa Rae doing it with people from Senegal. Um, but I, you do see it with people whose parents came from the Caribbean and that's that they will sort of shit on their Caribbean identity uh, if it means that they can um, they can sell a script or sell books uh, or sell tickets to a theater production. So what is I think the the what what what, what comes out of I think fairly uh, organic circumstances where Caribbean people are oftentimes like very poor, rural, conservative, um, and at the effect of like uh, U.S. imperialism. The way that people make do with that, I think a lot of their kids, especially people who came to the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I don't think they really have a lot of respect for their family. Oftentimes, they're, they're far removed from them, so they will actually kind of shit on their, their, their own culture if it means that it gets a laugh. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm not sure if Jordan Temple is... Caribbean or not. That's something that I was curious about too, but I couldn't find out if he was. I did find out that he's from he's from New York. Um he uh was a story editor for Marvelous Miss Maisel and he also um is a stand up comic. So like maybe stand up comedy tells more about his bio. Yeah, I was wondering that that myself. He's also a writer for um Abbott Elementary, which people keep swearing to me is very funny, but I have not, I have not tried it. Um, I, I plan to at some point, but it looks too much like The Office and Parks and Rec, and I just don't really like that type of dry humor. But um, I mean, I, I like the UK Office. I don't like the the American Office because it's. Yeah. I feel like Americans are too twee and nice to really do that type of dry humor well the way British people do. They don't have the the teeth. For it, they always have to kind of. Uh, they try to have teeth, but they they slap the syrup on the teeth before they start biting. Like it's it's it to, to, to sweeten it. They can't really do it the way. Uh, I mean, as much as I don't like Juki Gervais, the, I think the difference with the UK office is that none of the characters were supposed to be lovable. No, no, they weren't. Like Tim and Jim are just two different beasts. Like yeah. I just want to punch John Krasinski's. Uh, Jim character in the face <laughs> yeah. in a way that I think they don't intend because they think he's cool in the way that the UK office knows that Tim is not you know yeah, yeah. But 
Yeah, yeah, but uh, so he rests for Abbott Elementary, which feels like that type of U.S. Uh, version of that humor, which I don't really like. So I don't, I don't know. But by all, by all means, see, um, Doctor, if you're done, I was going to move on to Owen. Yep, I'm good. Thank you. Okay, thanks, and you're always welcome to come up again as usual. Um, so yeah, Owen, feel free to uh, join, and then after you speak, Owen. I'll read. I'll read from the Atlanta interview with um, Stephanie Robinson, which I put in the chat. But I'll let you speak first because you've been patiently waiting. What's up? Can y'all hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always a pleasure to have you in the in the queue. Uh, you've been you've been several in a row now. You always have something good to say. Yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, I guess. I say I'll say I kind of like this season, but I definitely do get why people don't like it like at all. It's very very understandable, and like I said in the chat, I do think uh, how how you were talking before. I th- I don't know if it was you, Tr- uh, Trevor, or Q who was talking about uh, Dadaism and how that uh, the whole like facade of that movement. Yeah, and- that was Q's great insight. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, like the you know Dadaism in, in response to World War One, and mm. then like the hippie movement in response to uh, Vietnam and their, um, you know their their boomer parents. It, it like I think both I think those movements that uh, replace, um, that replace like a revolutionary action with absurdity. I think that is that is the single greatest like, uh, a single greatest threat to change. Because it, it, it takes an off-ramp into, none of this makes sense, why the fuck even bother, let's just, let's just shitpost our way through the apocalypse. Hmm, I feel like that's a really good point, because that, uh, honestly, I feel like, uh, I guess, how do I say this? Um, commentary type comedy changed, uh, I think, Post in America, post like uh, the Daily Show with John Stewart, and how basically uh, John Stewart, uh, when you like look back at his shows uh, that he did in the past, I've did I've just uh, recently done like a retrospective since he got came out with this newer show, and I realized like he's not as progressive as I thought he was and then I watched his old stuff like I said and he actually wasn't as progressive as I thought he was at all it seemed like he was uh, centrist to a fault and sort of like uh, made fun of anybody who had any sort of like or anybody who was like in any way genuine well, whether it be on the left or the right yeah, and I how that, that kind of I, I call that South Park Syndrome where yeah, you, yeah. you triangulate a position from 30,000 feet up and you act as if anybody that holds a sincere political position is just stupid and deserves to be mocked. Exactly. Um, not, exactly. not only are you right on uh, point with that, guys, um, there was a Boston Globe article that came out at the peak of their popularity that said that, and this is back when uh, basically, everybody in the media was sucking the dick all day long. Like it was really bad. Like they were just uh, remember the, that whole rash of articles that were like, "Who ever believed we'd need a comedian to speak truth to power?" Or he's doing what politicians or 
newspaper people should do. And it just got really, really obnoxious, like the extent to which they were making them, um, you know, um, truth sayers. And someone wrote exactly that at the time where it was really, really unpopular to say so. I want to find who it was, but he basically said that the problem with Stuart and Colbert is that they make it uncool to care about anything. And mm-hmm. um, and this person got really, really um, ridiculed and attacked from it. And I and I and I, and a couple of years ago, people were kind of recirculating the art. And I remember when it first came out, people were bashing it. And I think recently I've seen people that kind of recirculate the article and agree with it. I think I saw Jamal Bowie um, recirculate the article, you know, in a in a positive way, talking about how. A lot of people gave this guy um, crap for for no reason, but people were acting like he was, you know, bad mouthing Mandela or something, you know. Or, I mean, it really got it was really a crazy a crazy time. I think that culminated the worst. Um, I think it culminated the worst with that rally for truth and sanity. That thing was, was yeah the dumbest thing I ever I think I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The, the yeah the rally for the rally for Sandy. I think um, a lot of people who are, I would say, like uh, on the the Bernie left, a lot of them were kind of caught up in that whole fervor. Uh, where, oh Jesus! Yeah, where like the 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 problem wasn't that there was one political party that was interested in simply like killing off or marginalizing vast swaths of the population. And then another party that was too pusillanimous to do anything about it. It was that, you know, what we actually have to do is be able to sit down and talk to one another. And the, I remember the speech that uh, that John Stewart gave, and it was he was basically talking about like how to merge in traffic, like how to execute a zipper merge in traffic. And the idea was that like if we just learned how to you know merge better, uh, that would solve the problem. So ideally, it's like, you know, your your political idea might not be the same as my political idea, but we can agree on some principles. So let's hammer those out first and then solve the rest later. And it's like, so that by that, you're exposing your own naivety. You, you, you think that these positions can, in fact, be reconciled, and they absolutely can't. Um, and but that, none of that was yeah. exemplified on his show, like, at all. Like, <laughs> it seemed like any time he had a, a quote-unquote person who was on the exact opposite views of him on his show, he just brought them on his show just to ridicule to them. To make fun of them, yeah. Yeah, like with the whole... Tucker Carlson thing when he still wore the bow tie and how he just went off about the bow tie for like 45 minutes and then continued to do it on like uh, following episodes for like years. Yeah, but at the very same time, he brought on Michael Bloomberg. And this was when Stop Stop and Frisk was still happening. And he just gave a tongue bath to Michael Bloomberg for like 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, he was licking that man's tank. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, like, it, it, it was embarrassing. Even for me at the time, I was like, yo, people watch this and think that this guy has anything worthwhile saying. And uh, now they're doing the exact same thing with Trevor Noah, and I think they're kind of forcing it. I think it's a lot easier to, for people to see through Trevor Noah than it was for Jon Stewart. But, yeah, Trevor Noah still enjoys tremendous cachet, and that's because he's generally inoffensive. Yeah, I honestly personally don't, like, get... Trevor Noah, it just seems like 
uh, I don't know how y'all going to take this, but he seems like the Obama of late night. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel that. I was about to actually say that. I was going to say it's the Obama effect. I think Trevor Noah is just um, the the Obama effect, basically. Except that even Obama, I think, has lost a lot of his luster. The, the, the original package, so um, it's a little too... It's uh, too little, too late. I think. Yeah. Oh, uh, like before I get up, I just wanted to talk about how like the uh, this season of Atlanta was like formatted with its uh, continuing storyline contrasted with its anthology episodes that tried to stay on theme of the season. Uh, I thought I thought it was done okay, but it seems like uh, the format of the season was. Uh, the regular cast of Atlanta, their the theme for their uh, storyline was like uh, American blacks uh, immersed in, uh, I guess, a exaggerated white world, and it seemed like the majority of the anthology episodes were the exact opposite. Because uh, I lived in Georgia for a while, like near Savannah, I have friends. I mean, in in Atlanta as well. And, uh, like, it seems like the majority of the episodes focused on white characters. Like, I know Atlanta, the city, and it seems like all of the white characters, or most of the majority of them, lived in the whiter parts of Atlanta. And uh, how I said in the chat, it seemed like this episode, um, this season was made for white people specifically because I feel like uh, Donald Glover and writers like him who are in this sort of generation seem like they really want to be accepted by white people. And it feels like it's coming to a point to where uh, a majority of their work is becoming white focused. And when I say white focused, I mean like an obsession with trying to explain the feeling of blackness to people which is kind of unnecessary when it comes to like making art in my opinion. This is kind of weird this season because I felt also was trying to explain whiteness to, to, but to white people, I think, which was weird in itself. Like, I mean, maybe you take something differently out of it, but yeah, I felt there's an extent to which we want to show a mirror to you, white America, of yourself, and somehow we're hoping you're gonna learn something about yourself that will ultimately make you treat black people better. I, I don't know. I mean, I do feel that these people, for these people in this season, there's the extent to which I feel white people live rent free in their mind in mm-hmm. a disturbing way, and so much of it is just wanting to work out their person like I feel like it probably understands white people better to a degree and, and they probably have a lot of interactions and um disgruntlement with uh they probably have more interactions and, and personal disgruntlement, especially career and romantic and personal um grudges with um white people and they're kind of working that out with white people in these bottle episodes. Yeah. And I don't even feel like they're like the problems that most black people have with uh, 
white people. They're they're, they're specific not, I mean, black people. Yeah, yeah, very specific black yeah. people. The people in the writers' room. Yeah, it yeah. seems like it's just a bunch of like. Okay, so y'all know uh, one of the Obama's kids was a writer this season, right on the show? Oh, I thought it was the coming season of something. Uh, she's already she already wrote it because I think he just announced. That she's gonna write on something. Was it definitely this season of this show? I thought I could have sworn like I saw that one of the uh, Obama da- daughters was like a writer or uh, on this season. Uh, and... Let me let me double check. You might you might be right. You might be right. Let's, yeah, let yeah. Me double check. I I just uh, bring that up to say like it seems like uh, this show uh, specifically this season was written in the perspective of like middle-class black kids who have a majority of experience with uh, middle-class white kids than they do with, like, uh, poor black people or, like, any other black people uh, in general. And it seems like from taking that perspective, uh, it seems like that's where that obsession with, uh, I guess, wanting to be understood comes from and it seems like instead of them focusing on just telling stories about black people in like I guess quote unquote regular situations it seems like they feel forced to explain themselves and in response to that they made these bottle episodes to sort of flip it and uh, I guess in their opinion make it more interesting Um, am I on mute? I'm, oh, yeah, I'm not on mute. Uh, yeah, so what happened was Donald Glover announced that Malia Obama is going to be a writer on his new Amazon show called Hive. I have no idea what it's about. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so it's a new show called called Hive. But I do think it still shows where his head is at, at least, you know, that he, yeah. he wants to have Obama's daughter on it. You know, like, what? But like all, if they do, if like these, if like I guess, it seems like these are sort the sort of like uh, the writers' room seems like the sort of black people who are like, yeah, we're all into like giving black people opportunities, but only black people of a certain class, because there are plenty of black people who are like professional writers. Who have, who couldn't have got a chance to like actually write on Atlanta from like a uh, poor person, the working person's perspective? But it seems like uh, a middle class person's perspective on poor black people when it comes to even the first and second season of Atlanta, in my opinion. Um, I found I couldn't find the original good article about how overrated. John Stewart was the one that you know was written at his peak, but I find the Jamel Bowie one that I for 2015, where Jamel Bowie uh, wrote an article, and I, I like the that he said this, even though it was, even in 2015 he, he got grief about this, but you know it's better late than never. He says why John Stewart was bad for the liberals who loved him, he was hilarious, but I am glad to see him go. So I just put that into into the chat, and I agree with everything you said. By the way, I'm, I don't want to just blow past that. I I did agree with everything that um, you said. 
Um, what I wanted to do was read from an article that talks about the finale, especially if Bernard is still in the audience. Um, I'm sure he wants to hear this, but... Yeah. You want me to hop off, Trevor? Oh, no, you can, you can stay on. Feel, feel free. I got you. Yeah. I'll just read my mic real quick. All right, no problem. Uh, Atlanta season three finale. Stephanie Robinson on the post credit scene. Wild guest star and Vans arc. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just jump to parts that I thought was um, interesting. But, um, you know, talk about Alexander's uh, scars guard and, you know, like, I guess wanted to get peed on and different things. And I just felt like that was something in general that was a running theme this season. There seemed to be something where he was using the show to let people come on and get the piss taken out of them. I feel like Z-Way's show serves serves the same purpose. Like, you pretend you're going on to be taken down, but by showing that you're a good sport, you actually, it actually kind of does damage control to let yourself get, you know, it's kind of like those celebrity roles. So having um, Liam Neeson come on and let himself be portrayed as, like, you know, a racist or called a racist, or but also kind of imply that the people who canceled him were as bad as, you know, whatever that weird cancel bar metaphor that was happening there. Um, to have Kevin Samuels on, um, to have to have I mean Alexander Skarsgård I don't think is has done anything particularly uh problematic but ironically someone said the previous week in this show Media Masochist that a lot of things that um happened in Atlanta this season kind of predicted what's happening in the real world you know around the time that the show's aired and his Northman movie is getting a lot of um flack for supposedly being too white or too white supremacist just by celebrating, you know, Vikings. And I feel like um, someone as white as him, you know, people probably just assume in this climate that, you know, he's being racist just by um, existing and taking up space in Hollywood. And and by having him get uh, the piss taken out of him, or more appropriately, pissed on um, in this episode, that's just another way to kind of show, hey, um, I'm cool. Uh, Chet Hanks in, you know, doing the um, Jamaican accent. And, I, and I, I feel like it's a way that both sides can win. The black people have a market say, hey, look, we brought this white person on to take them down, whether it's Z-Way and her um, fake computational interviews or whether it's Donald Glover and these weird scenes he's having. But they're also like benefiting from having that person on and they're kind of helping platform that person and also helping kind of reform that person because they both had Chet Hanks on and Chet Hanks has kind of been getting props after both um, appearances. It's kind of become more of a cartoon than whereas before a couple of years ago, people were really talking bad about Chet Hanks. Like, Hey, this guy, a major white supremacist, what's he doing now? His, Jamaican patois and his, everything is just kind of a surreal bit is being kind of reduced to. So um, I think that extends to the non-famous people, like the whole trading to the bone thing. I think making fun of that NPR-ish type white couple, he gets to tweet about how he made white people so uncomfortable, but when you read the white critics 
who totally fit the description of the people being skewed in the episode, they're all tweeting about how it started a great conversation. It was a great episode. Like, like none of them of the type of white people that that episode skewers are expressing, um, you know, discontent with it, you know, but anyway, going back to this article, um, um, let's see. Actually, I can't be finding anything too interesting. In this article, I'm sorry, Bernard. I I wanted to like, I don't know if you can find anything very interesting in this article to talk about. Uh, I mean, it's kind of disturbing that I can't. But yeah, I can't really find oh, anything. If uh, if nobody, yeah. I guess. Oh, I was just gonna say like uh, the whole the hand eating thing in the last yeah. episode. If nobody knows, that's a a reference to uh, Army Hammer. And I don't know if y'all know how Army Hammer was like accused of being a cannibal, like I think a year and a half ago, and people went crazy. Oh, oh yeah, with, with the with the um oh okay, that's what it's about. I think that commentary is a little bit of a too Easter eggy. I don't think Yeah, that's I, I mean, what it, it seemed like the whole last episode was. It was just Easter egg after Easter egg, how like uh it, the whole episode was a reference. I watch French movies. So like the whole episode was like a reference to French Am- movies. Amelie. Yeah. Yeah, Amelie, but also like uh French there's like French gangster movies in the nineties, specifically one called uh Lahane, about like uh the opposite side, quote unquote opposite side of France that was like more of the working class and poor people. And it seemed like it was a, a combination of uh different French film tropes to make it seem like uh Van tried her best to be white and then ultimately failed at that because she like couldn't forget quote unquote where she came from. And that kind of yeah. like Oh yeah, you go yeah, ahead. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, no, no, I just found that one question and answer that I thought might be interesting for uh you or Q maybe to build on. I mean uh, other than that, this episode with Stephanie Robinson is just kind of dry, but uh, there's one part where the interviewer asked her one thing that struck me about season three, especially in the standalone episodes like The Big Payback and Training to the Bone, was the focus on recognizing whiteness as an identity unto itself. That is not the default perspective, but one identity within a series of identities. Was that an audience was that an idea you wanted the audience to think about? And then she goes, Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a hard yes. T B White has its own host of problems within the framework of this country as it relates to racism. It's not the default perspective, and we're sort of poking the absurdity of that perspective. Um, and I think absurdity is a great word, the absurdity of racism. A lot of the times it's just horrible and horrifying, and as gross as as insidious as it is, it's also just very absurd. With those bottle episodes, I think that's what we're trying to reveal as well. We're all touched by this thing that feels kind of funny and strange and weird. But yeah, to be white in America isn't to live in a bubble and to just sort of ignore what's going on. We're all touched by the, the curse of this thing. And I think that was interesting to us as well. And again, that's I feel like this very generic post-2015 race talk that was kind of clever and new when it first was popping up around the time of Ta-Nehisi Coates. I feel like this is the, like the Ta-Nehisi Coates season of, of discourse. That just seems like such a Ta-Nehisi Coates' Um, 
discussion. Like first, the interviewer has been trained by Tanahasi Coates what to say and what the buzzwords are, and she's been kind of trained by Tanahasi Coates and Ibram Kendi to what the answer is. And it doesn't feel like a real conversation. It just seems like two people signaling, doing in-group signaling to each other to let each other know, hey, here's my question to let me know, to let you know that I've done the reading. Uh, would you like to respond in a way that lets the audience know you've done the reading? Uh, thank you. Uh, in fact, I would. And here's some stuff about white people and whiteness being a curse and, you know, whatever. Because I think Ta-Nehisi Coates has talked about that in his uh, first white presence thing about, you know, whiteness kind of hurting white people as much as black people and it being a curse and a talisman and all types of weird stuff. It Like, it seems very, at this point, very coached and routine and the same stuff. And people just won't stop patting themselves on the back for this stuff about the whole um, whiteness as a default normative gaze. And we have to break out of that. Like, okay, we have to move on from this. Like, we've, how many NPR-ish conversations can we have? And it's kind of funny that they're making fun of um, that white couple and how stale and NPR-ish their lives are and how they talk in NPR cliches about things they saw and read, but these people are the same way with blackness and race. They are the same as that white couple, but think they're somehow more authentic. I'm done. I'm I'm looking for the Stephen Glover piece in the meantime, because I think that one's probably... Oh, yeah, so there's another um, article I linked in the chat where it says... It's an okay player. Atlanta continues to highlight how white people are cursed by their own racism. And that one is um, a reference, again, to training to the bone. And, again, I just think it's an exaggerated idea that white people are, are that cursed by their own racism. And yeah. And also, and also you're not saying anything interesting about the thought either, you know. And, but the fact that you even think that, it does a lot to let white people off the hook. Like like you're saying you're trying to make them feel uncomfortable, but if you're saying that they're cursed, then that actually I think doesn't make them uncomfortable. It makes them a co-victim alongside you. You're doing them a service and letting them off the hook in the guise of making them uncomfortable, which is why they like you so much. Yeah, it's, it sort of reminds me of like, uh, you know how like, it, it seems like uh some uh, black people who are writers in this space feel like that they take that uh, that like you know that line Jesus says in the Bible like uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yeah, it seems, it seems like they just live by that. Like guys, like these white people, they're they're bad, they're bad, but like forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So they want to have it the cake and eat it too. They want to somehow say that but also pretend like like go go easy on them but also pretend that they're going hard on them at the same time they're going hard on them in a way that is actually going easy on them it's like a um it's like a farce it's a it's a game you know they're they're, they're play punching them but it's like um it's not it's not real it's like it's ridiculous. It, uh, here's here's another piece uh, from May 20th, 2022 and it's with Stephen Glover and it's in Vanity Fair and it goes, Stephen Glover thinks whiteness is a curse and 
you know, Vanity Fair is the same place that printed, um, it published Jamila Lemieux's article saying how um, black men are just like demonic. So it's like um, Vanity Fair has, is printing articles by black women saying that, you know, black men are like, uh, are akin to like Nazis, like literally, like what did she call it? The big question or the big, what was the way that she she likened uh, q do, do you remember what what nazi term she used to um describe um no, black I man I, um yeah well someone might remember in the chat you say like nig stopo or something ridiculous like that <laughs> oh, oh, oh no <laughs> that's the thing i think um britney cooper cooper said once uh actually let me just say this. Let me find it real quick, because because it, it's it's worth highlighting. But I just gonna want to show like uh, it was Dave Chappelle and the black ass lie that keeps us that keeps us down, and what she what she connected it to what 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 was it? Because um, this thing is long as hell. Like I think it filled up half my bingo card. Um, This thing is, this thing is too long for me to find the exact part where she compares them to Nazis. But I'll put it in the chat, and maybe somebody could find turn. But basically, Vanity Fair has a black woman come on down of um, oh the big lie. Someone said in the chat, uh, the big the big oh, lie. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. The big lie. That's right. Yeah, 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 that was that was. Hey, I remember that, and that was wild that she she brought that like she trotted that one out as if, man, I don't know. I, yeah, Jamil, I mean, I mean the, Jamila Lemieux, yeah. I think, has a lot of shit to reconcile with uh, what her father got up to, like you know, as a yeah. uh, former Panther uh, turned actor in the in the spooky set by the door, and then you know turned police officer who was. Uh, I mean, he was he was beating on black people like hotcakes, like it was just like it was going out of style, and, and I I wonder how much of what her worldview is shaped by her father's involvement with black radical movements. But she seems to like really admire the dude, but at the same time, oh, like, yeah. how, like how like what was going on in that household for her to turn out that way? Yeah, and the reason why I brought it up is because I want to point out to contextualize that this this place that's willing to publish such a heinous racist article like that using a black voice is also putting an article by about this show and praising it for saying that whiteness is a curse and i just want to i just point bringing that up to say that this this pretending this pretending that it's um really making white people uncomfortable like like some of the white people who are trafficking some of the worst stereotypes about black people are are loving the season you know what i mean so mm -hmm. is it really making them uncomfortable and this article is short enough that i think it's worth um yeah and if it, like if it, so like the mm -hmm. idea of the yeah the idea of the big lie was was basically uh how hitler um you like hitler's uh idea of the big lie was that uh jews um, while they were responsible for germany's loss in world war one they redirected the blame for the the loss in World War One to a German general, so the the idea of the big lie was that they've actually done like they they were the ones that undermined Germany. They were the ones that had no 
relationship or loyalty to this country and rather than accept responsibility for um, their part in uh, undermining our war effort, um, they redirected it towards this German general. So I'm thinking, like, why would you why would you say some shit like that? Like, Black America's version of the big lie, the black ass lie, in quotes. Like, there there is such a thing in our community that we call the black ass lie, is that black men have it worse than any other group of black people. But when you say Black America's version of the big lie, you're basically saying, hey, this marginalized group has redirected the blame for their undermining our nation towards towards something else, towards like some external factor for which they should be taking responsibility. So when you say the big lie is black men saying they have it worse than any other group, that's what you would expect the white supremacist to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. Yeah. It was important to contextualize where this article appeared. But um, Stephen Glover <laughs> thinks whiteness is a curse. The Atlanta writer and co-executive producer chats about all things season three from Brother Grimm's fairy tales to barbecue. For Atlanta co-executive producer and writer Stephen Glover, a history keeps repeating itself. You think you're going to get out of high school and you're like, I'll never have to do that again. And you go to work and you're like, oh, this is kind of like high school. Glover tells Vanity Fair over the phone from the outskirts of Atlanta. To Glover, it's a fitting analogy for the European soldier and Alfred, Darius, Van, and Ern embark upon in the third season of Atlanta, whose finale aired last night. There was this idea of, oh, I'm going to go somewhere bigger and better, and it's all going to be different, Glover says. Like, no, it's kind of the same. This sentiment pervades the third season of the Emmy-winning show as the crew confronts the haunting nature of whiteness, this time with a European flair. I think this season, as we say something, the haunting nature of whiteness, I feel like Get Out has so much to answer for, you know, um, this association of horror with, with whiteness, but uh, going yeah. on. Uh, I think that this season, we knew we wanted to do something different, change it a little bit, and this one was definitely by the theme, Glover says. We were calling it the curse of whiteness. That's the flavor that we went into the season with. With one season of Atlanta left, Glover answered Vanity Fair's questions about white earnest, famous guest star, stars, and where the series goes from here. And you can feel free um, to jump in at any point. Uh, it felt Vanity Fair. It felt like the narrative action of season three was a secondary to an exploration of the insidiousness of whiteness. And Stephen Glover answers, when we were in the writer's room, we talked about a lot of different things that were going on, a lot of different things that had happened to us, the state we were in. And we kept coming across these ideas that circled around whiteness and the idea of whiteness. We just started to break down these feelings that we had. This kind of confirms what we were saying about they're just working out their feelings, their uh, annoyances with white people, probably, you know, as they get more famous. I like the word insidious or even curse because on some level it's it's a curse. So it's not like you have to actively be doing anything, you know. It happens. It's like a law of nature. One of the funny ones, I mean, I guess it's not funny, but it's funny to us anyway, is the idea of black people wanting revenge against white people. Laughs. Which was created because of all the terrible things white people have done to black people throughout history. But now there's this belief that if the tables get turned one day, they're going to be worse to us because of what we did. Uh, white supremacists, they're scared. 
the biggest fear is the day when that might happen. Barack Obama, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's a joke of he's going to make all white people slaves. It's kind of a rational fear that exists. And because of that, they have to be worse people. Black people don't care. It's not like they were like, oh, Obama's going to punish white people for us. But it creates this momentum that's just kind of funny. This idea that you can't ever give up your superiority. Um, I think it's a very Fisher-Price race analysis, but let's go on. The standalone episodes in particular, this is a question, seem to deal with the curse of whiteness. And he responds, the standalone episodes really were taking these big ideas and putting them into their own story. So the irrational fear that they have for revenge, for me, there's some of that in the reparations episode. The standalone episodes are really where we get into those big questions. I think the one ones with the main characters are definitely on theme too. And there's some of those bits in there, but with the standalone episodes, that's where we really crafted these big ideas and tried to distill them into the best story that we could at the time. I think we did a good job. That's def- they were definitely fun to do. I wrote Three Slaps, the first episode of season three. For me, it was probably my favorite episode to write in the whole series. That's the one that um, was um, Aquarius um, and based on Devontae Hart. It just felt like I was able to mix a lot of things that we've been doing from the previous seasons, plus these really big ideas we had and the fun and challenge of trying to distill them into something palatable. That episode like a fairy tale took the idea of teaching a lesson like Hansel and Gretel is a scary story. First off, he's seen big ideas too much, which I think is giving himself way too much credit. But Yeah, um, and the, yeah. Thing, like, the, the, the three slaps episode was, I don't know, we, we discussed it already. The, the idea that that episode had anything to say or offer, uh, dog, I don't know, man. They, uh, who, yeah. who, who actually tells these people, yo, the, the shit you do is really not that great? Yeah, exactly. They need that in their lives. And I, and I think they don't, they surround themselves with people who don't do that. And it's not helping them. They need someone to give them notes or something. I totally agree. Um, speaking of that first episode, I was really fascinated by the character of White Ernest, who bookends the season. He was such an interesting and tragic figure. Uh, he's definitely the specter, which is perfect for the season. He's definitely helping to tie so many episodes together. I think him showing up in the first episode is great. Him showing up later in Big Payback is great. And then showing up at the end, it just helps remind everyone of this is a package that we're putting together. And disjointed as I think the season can feel because we've done so much in 10 episodes, is just a grounding point. This is, there is a cohesiveness still holding these together. It's kind of funny because I don't remember White Ernest at all. Uh, I think the surrealness and this disjointedness Made, probably made a lot of people miss uh, White Ernest. I didn't even realize that it was some kind of recurring character they were doing. And I binge-watched that thing. It wasn't like I was even waiting week by week. What are we supposed to take away from the final shot of the season with Ern, Donald Glover, getting White Ernest's bag? Both of their names are Ernest. Ernest looks in his bag, and he's got the picture of White Ernest's family. And the whole time that we've seen this guy, White Ernest, have this tragic thing going with him. He's lost his bag, too, and it ends up just coming to Ern. They're connected in a strange way. Ern is doing fine. This other guy lost his bag. There's a balance through the universe, and it's permeated through the universe between these two people who seem like they really have nothing in common. That is a very lame, I feel, point, personally. Like, that's one of his big ideas. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I, like, um... He says, uh, uh, well, first of all, Vanity Fair asked this question, and I hate, I hate when people use this word. I've actually begun to, I, I've, I've 
stopped using this word in my writing. How did the central foursome wrestle? When, when people use the word wrestle or grapple in their discussions of art, I'm like, what, whatever is about to follow is going to be some like nonsensical bullshit. How did the central foursome wrestle with the curse of whiteness over the course of the season? With their main characters in season three, there's this idea of getting outside of Atlanta, going to Europe, which for most people is the idea of that's what the world is. When people are outside of America, that's really what you think of Europe and just what the rest of the world has to offer. I think Europe is different from America, and it's also the same. It's also white, very white. So there's also this idea of going to another level, a bigger world outside of Atlanta. And there's this idea of seeing so much that it can change your perspective and will change your perspective while you're still the same person from Atlanta. I think for our characters, that's mostly a crash course in the bigger game or the bigger world. For The Curse of Whiteness, in the Old Man in the Tree episode, Alfred beats this rich billionaire who stiffs him for money. And the question he asks himself is like, am I supposed to be upset about this, or is this what rich white people do? Because in Atlanta, it would be like this, and I think that's the feeling for everyone. Here's this bigger world that we're a part of, but I've learned a lot from my hometown, from Atlanta already. And the same game is being played here, but the rules are different. And I think the season sums up those feelings. How did, how, what does that have to do with the so-called curse of whiteness exactly? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, none of this, none of this makes sense. Like, like, he just has these stock answers, and he's just kind of giving them without even really thinking they actually relate to the question. He's just kind of, uh, you know what I feel like, you know, what I, no depth. you know what I feel like happened? I feel like he came up with this idea called the curse of whiteness, but didn't know how to follow it up. I don't think he actually thought about any of this while he was writing the episodes or while they were shooting them. It was only in the promo for the season that he thought, we should really go with this, uh, this tagline. I, but you know, I, I feel like he probably, maybe halfway through, had it in him, but I just think he just was so in love with it, he didn't really care to think past curse. the superficial. What does, what does that mean, the curse of whiteness? What, what is I that? think it's like, uh, uh, like the white urn is supposed to be representative of like white guilt or whatever and like the quote unquote toxicity of white guilt and how like uh I, I don't know I just think it's it's like kind of very uninteresting you know, you know, you know what is you know what is the, the wildest thing is that for as many people try to talk about race as being a social construct they really like it's like it's like in their quest to, to disprove Blackness is yep. inferiority. They've built mm-hmm. up whiteness into a godhead. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's it's it, it is it, white whiteness has taken on this demigod like characteristic, and I don't like it. All whiteness is all whiteness is is basically an in group that it's it's an in group that says, hey, if you're if you're a part of the select club, we're not going to be as hard on you. As a matter of fact, you might be able to come to our secret meetings. Um, as long as you agree that these people that are outside of this group, well, they, they can't be in here, right? And obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a counterbalanced by blackness. But I, I don't think these people that talk so much about whiteness ever actually sit around and consider what whiteness is, how it originated, and that it's not this, like, eternal, uh, this, like, this primordial thing that's always been with humanity and may be around long after we're gone because the soil will remember. It's, it, the concept is only a few hundred years old. It can be unmade just like it was made. And yet, like, they spend so much time focusing on this shit that they have... It's almost like um, like in the, the show American Gods, how, like, these... Um, and in the, the comic book, 
that uh, these these gods come into existence just because people give so much energy towards it. Mm-hmm. That it, it doesn't have to be worshipped as a thing. It's just if that's what you dwell on, you think about, and you spend like y- your your subconscious efforts. Um, think of, like how like the uh, the god of tech, uh, the god of the internet uh, shows up. Just because we're like we're on the internet, we're online so much, right? We're so interconnected. Um, I think it feels like the same thing with whiteness, where it's it's this I think fairly ludicrous concept that was invented to justify slavery, and now it's become this like this again this like this primordial force of nature. Yeah. Um. Am I muted or not? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay. Um. You know, you raised a good question. He does a bad job of discussing this curse of whiteness and. I feel like it's something that's been said by the post Tanahasi Coates um, court array of black writers. I know um, even Kendi has kind of gotten into it. So I just Googled whiteness, and there's different people saying it or variations of people um, saying it. But because of um, Atlanta being in the news recently and all these interviews are the curse of whiteness, unfortunately, most of the search results are primarily about, you know, season three of Atlanta. But I did find something interesting. OK Player had this article that kind of delves into it. Uh, and this, this lady, Jelani Turner-Williams, a uh, contributing writer to OK Player, who I'm guessing is a black woman, um, she's running with the idea. I just put it into the chat. And I think it's kind of interesting because this kind of tells you what Atlanta's target audience is taken from it because sometimes the audience sometimes uh, fills in the blanks better than the creator because they see things. And I feel like Stephen Glover is not doing a good job explaining it. I agree. So she wrote an article and I think this is short enough and interesting, you know, to, and and then we'll end it with this and we'll let people out there if they want to call up after this and, you know, give me your thoughts on it. But she goes, how Atlanta tackles the idea of quote unquote woke white men. And she goes, this is after the reparations episode. On the big payback, the latest episode of Atlanta, the idea of the woke white man gets explored even further. We're all in the same boat. At least that's what Ernest contends in Three Slaps, the season three premiere of FX series Atlanta, seated across from an unnamed black man who viewers later discover is named black in the post episode credits. Ernest divulges in a tale of a self-governed black town that was drowned in form a lake between the boat. A paranoid black who recalls once swimming in the same lake as a child and felt like he was being pulled below grows concerned about the lake being haunted, which Ernest affirms. Also, also that's why Ernest. Um, Ernest's explanation then turns into a montage about the town being whitewashed although he claims that foreign black residents were financially secure enough to be quote-unquote almost white. And then this is the, the speech. With enough blood and money, anybody can be white. It's always been that easy. That's bullshit. Uh, Ernest explains to black. But the thing about being white is it blinds you. It's easy to see the black man is cursed because you've separated yourself from him. But you don't know you're enslaved just like him. Cold whiteness. Hypothermic. You lose logic. You see the blood and you think someone else is bleeding. Everyone is screaming at you to turn the machine off or you can't hear them. You can't even hear yourself. So we're cursed too. 
were cursed too. So I think that's the most direct explanation from the writer's room. So I think that goes against the idea that they came up with the curse of whiteness after the fact, because it's in the first episode with the character that bookends it. They talk about it, you know, explicitly, but to me, it seems kind of like gibberish. Like that paragraph, what would you guys say you get out of that paragraph? Because I can't really parse the paragraph myself. With enough blood and money, anybody can be white. It's always been that way. I mean, that gives the idea that, you know, it's about class, not race, I guess. But then why are we doing a show about race then? Um, no, I think it's the other way around, Trevor. I think they're conflating race with class. No, but, 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 but that's what I mean. If you conflate race with class, as in, if you make enough money, you can transcend your blackness and become white, then... It really is about class. At the end of the day, if it, I know, but they, I think they don't realize that that they're doing that. I, I think they, they're what they're, uh, the writers of Atlanta seem. They, it seems like you know how some black capitalists feel like the only thing bad about uh, capitalism is that it's connected to a certain race because of uh, like previous things that happened in the past. I think yeah. that's what it is. I feel like I feel like uh what they believe is that whiteness's connection to anything corrupts it instead of it being uh like greediness or capitalism actually doing that instead. But the idea that with enough blood and money anybody can be white, you know, um then it becomes the problem is the elites to, to me, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's a slippery slope into, um, I think, undermining the whole and undercutting the whole idea about race. Like, um, and it's also kind of disturbing thought to me to think like with enough money and blood. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, the whole paragraph is just kind of in the idea that you don't know that you're enslaved just like the black man. Uh, what does that mean? What do they mean by enslaved? Like what? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I mean, if you look at the prison industrial complex, which is like neo slavery, I mean, it's very overwhelmingly black. I don't think white people are as enslaved as black people. And like, you lose logic, and losing logic coming right after you're enslaved, just like him. I just feel like it's a weird flattening. Uh, do they mean enslaved, I- like? enslaved in thought or whatever BS some college kids say like your thoughts are enslaved to a way of thinking man like some I mean, BS like yeah that's total BS but it's extra BS to equate it to how black people are enslaved if, if you're saying that you're enslaved by your thoughts and it it's claiming that being enslaved by your thoughts is making you as enslaved as a black person then I think that's a very horrible underrating of how enslaved uh, black people are and continue to be, you know, like... uh, But you do forget that there are a bunch of black capitalists who believe that the reason why black people are still in the quote-unquote situation that they're still in is because their mindset is enslaved. You you hear a bunch of them say almost that exact Oh, yeah, yeah. those people that say in the white white supreme over me, I don't believe in the white supremacist. The white supremacy is something you can just avoid by refusing to believe in it like like, like you give it power by uh believing it like uh yeah in white supremacy uh maybe you in the white supreme over me it's like yeah okay whatever you say 
I feel like I feel like you just hit something there, Trevor, because you know how uh like that that line I think we were talking about before how uh I guess uh I was listening uh, this makes sense, but uh I was listening to uh TI complain about his son today like uh getting in a fight with a Waffle House worker and I'm pretty sure his son got his ass beat. But how uh, T.I. was just talking about his son, is whose name is King, of course, knowing the house nigga T.I. But, like, it's, it, it, he was just talking about how his son doesn't need to pay attention to short order cooks because they're beneath him. And I feel like that same ideology. Wow, you said that? that? Yeah, he said they're, like... They're like beneath them. Like my son, I tried to talk. He's, he was saying in the his Instagram video, I was trying to talk to my son about like uh, these people who are short, like line by line. He said short order cooks are like beneath them. He just needs to ignore them because he, uh, my son just needs to live his life because these people are like jealous of how you live. Cause, cause you know this is Ti. Come on now, this this mm. man is the definition of house, like tap dancing ass house nigga. That's that, this that's, is Wakanda. That's I, I'm not, I'm not thinking when you said that. This is this is Wakanda. Like get the fuck out of here. Remember that? <laughs> I hate that nigga so much. I hate him so <laughs> much. Just right yeah, after he... like, uh, uh, Killer Mike got his fat ass up there. It was said, we don't do this to our city where black people are landlords. We don't do it. We don't do that in our city. So yeah, let me let me get out so Jake can get on here. I appreciate y'all. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Likewise, likewise, and yeah, yeah. We can end it with Jay. I think it's a good place, good place to end it. Uh, and actually, this, this thing I want to throw out there at some point before we get off is what was the meaning of using a black trans person in that. Uh, Dutch episode. Oh, Jay, you're not obligated to talk about that topic. It's just something I'm hoping Q can remind me to talk about before we end because I was kind of confused about a lot of things about that episode. And Jay, feel free to unmute. It's the button to the right. Oh, you got it. Great. Can I hear me? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear you. How you doing? All right, peace. Peace. It's good, man. Um, so I'm pretty sure I'm in the minority here. It's like, I really fuck with the season. And like, not because I agree with anything like from Donald Glover. Like he, he's pretty much like, he, he's kind of half-baked with a lot of his like political like theories. But like, I feel like I don't really care if you have like shitty politics, as long as you like, can like write a good plot, you know, and be like engaging. And like outside of like the band episode and like Liam Neeson, like, for the most part, it was pretty, like, decent writing. You know what I'm saying? And, like, I, I kind of mm, appreciate that's, the fact that, like... Go ahead. Oh, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. So, like, I appreciate the fact okay. that he was very close to being America's, like, favorite Negro. Like, just being, like, like watching a sketch from, like, late 2000s YouTube and, like, being on Community and 30 Rock. He was very close to being America's favorite Negro. And then he just, like, hit, like, a 180... You know what I'm saying? And he, he's, he, he's still like not all the way there as far as like breaking from that, but he, he's definitely reading a few books, you know what I'm saying? Challenging himself a little bit. So, I mean, I fuck with it. Yeah, I mean, I think he's still being America's favorite Negro. I mean, he's, 
doing the Mr. and Mrs. Smith series, and he's doing a, a Lando Calrissian Star Wars thing. So mm-hmm. I think there's an extent to which he's kind of posing himself as going against the system. But, I mean, the reason why, mm-hmm. like, multiple years between each, each season is because he's taking breaks to do, like, bigger and bigger things. I, I think they're giving him a whole Lando Calrissian series after this one on uh disney disney plus that's the next and he's working on so it's like you know i do agree with you that um he was on the verge of you know being america's favorite negro but i don't think this has necessarily changed that um per se but i am interested that uh, i i thought the episode with the cancel uh bar it was actually not bad from a plot standpoint. I, I was wondering why why you thought the Liam Neeson one was um, one of the worst plotted episodes because because I, I I personally thought that one was actually uh, one of the more enjoyable ones for me to watch uh, plot wise. The whole circular um, thing where he ended up being the guy in the alley that he saw early on and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh no, it was good. It's just like that, that scene itself with Liam Nelson. It was oh, just like, oh, oh yeah, that scene was. It was a little like too hard. like meta, you know what I'm saying? It was just like, come on, dog. Like, like at least with Chet Hanks, it was like he like actually fit into the plot, like him being like this fake like Islander, you know what I'm saying? Like that fit into the plot. But Liam Nelson is just like just shoehorned in there. It just it didn't make any sense. What did you guys think that bar was supposed to be? Like, like, like I got, got the idea that the bar was a place where you go to be canceled. And so he was asking like, what did you do to end up here and everything? But I'm like, okay, do you go there to be redeemed? Like those two kind of, kind of metaphor about cancel culture he was trying to do with the bar. I'm like, so is he supposed to be transphobic? So is that why he's in the cancel bar with the trans person because he's harboring or is he there by mistake? Like, like why does a trans person have some kind of special relationship to the cancel bar. Um, I don't know if anybody knows what was going on with the... Because um, I feel like if we could figure out what that bar was about, then maybe Liam Neeson's inclusion in the episode would maybe would seem more organic. But yeah, I think, I think that that's what I got kind of stuck on was what he was trying to say about the bar. It made the bar seem kind of dangerous. Like, she was kind of... The trans woman was making the bar seem like it's not easy to escape, but I'm like, okay, then why did you bring him there? Um, if it's so so dangerous, and it was, I mean, she was clearly a figment of his imagination, right? But then, why did he imagine a black trans woman? Like, was that supposed to mean something? Is he closeted gay? Like, I don't, I don't really know what was going going on with a lot of these episodes. I think I you're, I think you're thinking a little bit too deeply about that because I doubt <laughs> they even put that much thought into it. To be perfectly honest. Yeah, you're probably right. Things right. could like, like there, there's, there's, sorry, go ahead. Like you know, how the people always like, um, like say that like you know, black trans women are like on the bottom as far as like the oppression ladder goes. Like I think that's what's like, what's going on. I heard kind of like, representing like, um, like being canceled by like the person who's the most oppressed. I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, just, I think, I, I think also he was just, they were just trying to use so many internet and 
hot button Twitter. I was topic just, I was just gonna say that it, it just seemed to me like uh, they spun the, uh, um, they spun the wheel of fortune wheel, or the the, the the price is right wheel, and then just like whatever, whatever it landed on is what they chose as both a theme and plot for those episodes. Right? Like, yeah. It just it just seemed like they it seems like they they yanked like uh, stuff that they had seen show up on Twitter. Um, and then just like cross it up with other stuff they had seen on Twitter, and then lo and behold, an episode pops out. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. I cannot argue with that at all. I think that's exactly what it was, and you know, figure we'll figure out what it means later on, or leave that to the audience because you know we'll just pass it off as being weird, and the audience can do the heavy lifting um, for us, which is what I think happened with a lot of the curse of whiteness. Um, discourse i noticed when stephen glover talks about it he can't even really articulate it himself but when i searched curse of whiteness i found so many think pieces uh overthinking it to like a degree that you know stephen glover couldn't even do you know based on his answers so i think it probably counts on a lot of um you know woke people to you know, use your imagination and run with it, you know, because to a degree, I was even starting to do that just now when I was asking all those questions about the episode and you just kind of brought it down to earth by saying, I'm probably thinking it deeper than they did. And I was like, yeah, he's actually right. And uh, yeah, I think I'm ready to wrap it up there. If you have any last thoughts, Jay, um, you can say them now before we close out. No, I'm straight, man. Uh, thanks for joining us. I uh, appreciate everybody came up tonight. A- everybody had great uh, insights today. I-, I don't think we had one troll. <laughs> uh, today no, was pretty good. No, no, no. Uh, actually, I-, I got a question for you. What, what would you think of? Um, what would you think of doing a-, a breakdown of Stranger Things? Oh God, I hate that show so bad. Oh, but, I mean, this, that means this, we're doing this, it. This, we're doing it. This show is called Media Masochist, so I guess I have to live up to <laughs> I should I should lie and say I love the show. So then I should get out. I'm gonna start doing that. I'm, start, I'm gonna start claiming to love shows that I hate so that yeah. I don't have to Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean Yeah, I'll do I'll, I'll do I, it. I, I, I've, I, I've, I'm beginning to like I'm seeing through the uh, I'm seeing through the veil more not only like through um the show writers veil, like the Duffer brothers, I'm not only seeing through their veil but I'm seeing through the Netflix model as well. Just like as every season goes on, I think each season like kind of represents something significant about Netflix. Mm, okay, you have me very interested now. I stopped with season two, so I'd have to watch like two seasons to catch up. So yeah, I'm going to probably get some, some liquor so I can suffer through it. But yeah, I'm down. In fact, I'll make that the next week's episode if you're down if you're if you have well, caught up we should probably we should well okay we can probably get into like the first half of the season because the last two episodes are not going to be available uh for a, a number of weeks so we can probably go through the first half and then go through the second half of the episode like we did with atlanta and euphoria okay sounds sounds good to me all right cool all right uh everyone thanks for joining um Check out Resist, Resistance Noir. Check out Champagne Sharks. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you can see all the other things that, you know, we do under the Champagne Sharks umbrella, including Patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. And also, if you haven't already, if you stumbled upon us, um, 
follow the people on the stage and also follow the show itself, Media Masochist. Even if you follow us as individuals, follow the show and make an account with calling if you haven't, because uh, if you're listening on the desktop, logged in, it helps our metrics, which, you know, helps us stay on calling. Make an account, you fucking freeloaders. Exactly. Make an account. He didn't call it freeloading because making an account is free. So it's not like you're avoiding <laughs> you're avoiding spending money. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. just don't freeload anonymously. Free, freeload freeload with your name instead of freeloading <laughs> anonymously. And any any final things you need to uh, plug Q before we end it? I uh, know that's pretty much it. I guess I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks guys. Be good everyone. Bye. Peace.